Well, good afternoon, everyone, on this absolutely beautiful Friday, and welcome to this week's Fireside Chat. I'm Lisa Stearns, and I'm here with Dr. Tim Cross, our Senior Vice President, and today we'll be updating you on the latest information regarding COVID-19 cases within the university, the state of Tennessee, and across the country. And we do have a special guest today who will be sharing her thoughts on what teaching and learning might look like post-COVID. So as usual, remember to keep your audio muted. Use the chat function in Zoom if you'd like to ask any questions. You can post your question publicly in chat or you can send it privately to me. And a recording of this session will be made and posted to the UTIA coronavirus website. You can always find that link on our homepage at utia.tennessee.edu. So Tim, good afternoon. Um, how does the case count currently look for the university and statewide and even across the country? Well, good afternoon, Lisa. Thanks for kicking us off again. And uh, let's hope that today is not uh, in any way uh, bad for those that are superstitious since it is Friday the 13th. But, you know, looking out the window, how could it be a bad day? Uh, beautiful fall day. So uh, hopefully that bodes well for, for the future uh, as well. Let me jump right in and talk just a little bit about our COVID data because I'm really looking forward to getting to our guest today. So uh, let me share my screen and we'll uh, take a look at our slides as we have been for the past uh, three or four years, it seems. <laughs> Not quite that long. Uh, so how are we looking? Well, uh, going to sound like a broken record once again. We're, we're really much the same again as we have been for the past uh, three months or so. Uh, we have seen this week uh, a slight uptick in the number of positive cases among students, but uh, among employees university-wide, uh, we're, we're really uh, at, at virtually the same, well, we are at the same level as last week and very similar to previous weeks as well. So in terms of active positive cases, uh, quite low among employees and, and still, I would say, modestly low among uh, students uh, too. And if we look at isolations, it really shows the same uh, pattern overall, uh, about 44 uh, uh, employees currently in isolation uh, due to direct contact. Uh, and we're seeing right now about 400 students uh, in isolation as well. Uh, if you look at the student data in particular, that seems to be trending up the last couple of weeks. And uh, as we'll see in a minute, I think there's probably some good reasons why that's the case. Uh, we certainly don't want to see that increasing, but uh, I think it's, uh, it's understandable and, and to some extent explainable as well. As far as uh, our situation here in the Institute of Agriculture, our number of active positive cases uh, also looks like uh, it's certainly demonstrated a, a trend, uh, an increasing trend over the last four weeks. Uh, from uh, one case uh, in late October to now uh, six active cases uh, here on, on the 13th of November. Uh, and, and while that trend doesn't look good, again, we're talking about very small numbers here. So uh, I think we've managed, uh, I say we, you have managed, uh, faculty and staff and, and student employees have managed to keep our, our number of positive cases very low uh, amongst our workforce. And our isolations, uh, again, look much like we've just talked about, uh, a trend upwards there uh, from uh, 10 or 11 cases over the past several weeks up to now uh, 18 
employees in isolation uh, as of today. So the, we're certainly seeing some increases in our numbers, uh, but I think the increases to this point are remaining very small, very low, and that's, uh, that's certainly uh, positive news for us. And I think why that's positive is contrast that data with what we're seeing here, and this is the number of uh, new positive daily cases uh, in the US. And this uh, chart just continues to show exponential growth, unfortunately. Uh, weeks ago, we were talking about holding the number of cases under 50,000 per day, and now we're looking at uh, yesterday, for example, more than 140,000 cases in a day. So clearly, uh, there's, there's widespread uh, transmission of coronavirus taking place across the country, and this chart, I think, shows that very, very, uh, very graphically and very directly. And if we uh, look at similar data, that same type of data for Tennessee, the number of uh, new active cases in a day uh, in Tennessee, and then the red line there, the, the bold red line, representing basically a seven-day rolling average, uh, that chart also, unfortunately, is showing an upward trend. A week ago, it looked like we might be plateauing, but, uh, but certainly since then, we've seen uh, several uh, uh, very large uh, days of, of reports of new positive cases. So think back to our university data where we're seeing some modest increases uh, at the campus and at the institute levels. Contrast that with what's taking place nationally and across the state. What's, what's concerning, obviously, is that uh, if, if the general population is growing in terms of the number of cases out there, uh, the, the odds of transmission just are or continuing to increase. And what that calls for is, is even a, a rededication by each of us to following the practices that have kept us uh, at low levels up to now. So I'll have more to say about that uh, a little later, but uh, that gives you a snapshot of where, we've, where we're at uh, and also uh, relative to where we've been uh, at the university, uh, state and national levels and uh, gives a little bit of context for, uh, for what we see hopefully, uh, uh, or currently anyway, uh, with regard to our COVID uh, challenges. So that's, uh, that's a quick summary this week, uh, Lisa. So thanks, Tim. And let's, let's hope that our low numbers stay that way. Um, as you said, using safety precautions, it's so important. So um, COVID obviously has changed uh, many of our familiar processes that we've been used to uh, pre-COVID, including how we provide education to our students and even our clients. And uh, so today we have a special guest who I know you'd like to introduce. Yeah, and, and while she's a special guest, I also uh, just told her she's also one of the family uh, here in the Institute too. And for those of you that haven't met her before, I know you'll, you'll enjoy uh, hearing from her today. Uh, Dr. Linda Martin, uh, who is Vice President for Academic Affairs with the UT System, has uh, agreed to join us today and, and uh, really pleased that she's uh, made the time for us. Uh, Linda, for those of you that don't know her, is an animal science graduate. Uh, she has served in faculty and administrative roles at several land-grant universities, including Kansas State University, Oklahoma State University, and Ohio, uh, Ohio State University. So, she is certainly a product of the land-grant system. She's uh, uh, knowledgeable of, of agriculture, knows the work we do and how we do it and why we do it. So 
Uh, that's why I say she is she is one of us. Uh, she's currently serving on the UT Extension uh, Dean Search Committee. So uh, she rolls up her sleeves and, and helps us out in many, many different ways. Linda recently made a presentation to a national organization, uh, the Food Systems Leadership Institute. And some of the folks that we had in participation in, within that uh, uh, organization contacted me and said, you've got to ask Linda to come and share this uh, on a fireside chat because our employees need to hear the message that she had to share. So I'm going to just stop my remarks right, right there. I'm going to turn it over to Linda and say thanks for joining us today. Linda, if you would, go ahead and share your screen when you're ready and share with us your thoughts about rethinking the teaching and learning mission in a post-COVID-19 world. Well, thanks, uh, Tim, and thanks to everybody. And as Tim mentioned, this was really prepared for a national presentation. And so what I've done in preparation for today is to go back and put in some UT kinds of comparisons. And then we can, in questions and answers, really focus on questions that you might have relative to UT. But my charge for the presentation was to talk about the impact of the pandemic on the teaching mission, what's the shifting landscape, where are our pressure points, and then how will teaching and learning change after COVID? And so I, um, I, I, I'm a person that always views challenges as, as opportunities and really COVID is no exception. And I, I believe that if we come out of the pandemic going back to the way that we've always done it, we've really missed an opportunity to redefine higher education and to become more forward thinking and learning, learner ready institutions. And so this is a chance to really design our post pandemic destiny. And institutions who are able to do that are going to thrive, and those that won't uh, may not survive. And so we have to become bold, unconventional, nimble, entrepreneurial, and curious. And then above all, I think we need to be willing to try new things and have the courage to fail, which doesn't always happen in higher ed. But I, I, I think the opportunity is there, and the time is now. And so looking forward, I think there's a real, a real chance to make a difference. In spring of 2020, as everybody knows, higher education turned on a dime. And we, we faced a challenge that few in, had anticipated. In a matter of days, we closed our door and went fully online. In 2018, only 35% of undergraduates had taken an online course. And in a matter of days, 35% went to 100%. And while the shift required very thoughtful short-term action, what it did is it illuminated the need for lasting change and an urgency to develop long-term solutions. And I would say not just in teaching and learning, but in teaching and learning very broadly defined in terms of extension education as well. And, and, and research in, in very different ways needed to respond to the pandemic. So we, with the intersection of the ensuing financial crisis, as well as social unrest, turbulent political climate, uncertainty of the pandemic, it really illuminated the need to reimagine higher education. And so today I, I'm gonna present a couple, just some food for thought. I'll probably raise more questions than I'll answer, but hopefully there'll be a lot of good discussion that follows up as a result. As I indicated, the changes from fall of 19 to 20 were dramatic. And while they seem to happen, 
that the changes happened overnight, the effects will likely last generations. And so the impact of the pandemic and our response to the crisis will continue to affect how the public views higher education, the confidence our, our students have in our ability to provide quality educational experiences and the per perceived value of a higher education. And I would say also the per perceived value of the information that we deliver. So if we look at uh, undergraduate education in particular, most four-year institutions did not see a dramatic decrease in the fall of 2020, and that was a little surprising. Uh, we anticipated that we would see much, much greater decrease in enrollment. And in general, those students who were with us in spring of 2020 returned in the fall. This wasn't the case for our two-year institutions. The, which experienced a decline in enrollment of nearly 9%. And it was perhaps influenced more by affordability than any other single factor. And this is important for UT because about at UTK, about half of our, our transfer students come from two-year institutions. And at our other UT campuses, about two-thirds of all of our transfer students come from two-year institutions, many of whom, most of whom come from institutions within the state. And so that's a concern as, as we look forward. About 50 to 75% nationally come from of our transfers come from uh, two-year institutions to four-year institutions. And so that pipeline is really important. The real story is what happened to our incoming first year students. COVID had a far different impact. Public four-year institutions had a decrease of nearly 14% in incoming freshmen and public two years, nearly 23%. And even more troubling, a lot of the national experts are predicting that these students may not likely re-engage with higher education and that they have been out in jobs that perhaps are supporting families. And many are reporting that they don't see the value that they once saw in pursuing a, a college degree. Of the over 4,000 institutions nationwide, 40 are public, 40% are privates, and about 20% are for-profits. And about half of the 18, or about half of the 800 uh, private institutions have fewer than 1,000 students. So what we're gonna see is that many institutions are gonna, that many institutions struggled prior to COVID, but given COVID, a lot of them are gonna close their door or look for opportunities to partner. Some of the more affluent institutions are not likely to be as affected, but everybody will be affected. What I thought I would share is just how fortunate we are in the face of COVID at, at UT. And with, with the decline that we've seen nationally, remember we said a 14% decrease among four-year publics, we had an all-time high in enrollment of 52,559 students system-wide. And we had a slight decrease at UTC and UTM, probably more due to the, the uh, application deadline and an all-time fresh, record freshman enrollment of just one short of 8,000 students. And that's remarkable because nationally, that, that number was a 14% decrease and we had an all-time record high. Saw a slight decrease in transfer enrollment, UTK was up but both UTC and UTM were down in transfer student enrollment. National estimates indicate that this trend, that the ability to be able to recover will last about five years, if at all. There'll be some institutions who will not recover 
from the pandemic. And so I think that that in itself is pretty alarming. The impact of COVID is compounded, as you know, with projections of high school graduates, and we're no exception to that. Nationally, the number of high school graduates is, is expected to decline by 15% to the year 2020 and then continue to decrease to 2030. And this is where I feel like 4-H can have a real impact in engaging young people and thinking about higher education. Not that we don't already do that, but we have the ability among land grants to be much more intentional because we have the opportunity to reach young people at a much earlier age. And so this is a real role that I think that we can step up and have an impact relative to our four-year land-grant institutions. We also know that there's regional differences in demographics and the impact that it has relative to attitudes of higher education. The West is expected to increase in student enrollment. The South expected to decrease by 8.5%. So uh, we're facing not only fewer high school graduates, but also a sense that in the South, fewer students are likely to can, or, um, consider higher education, and those that do um, may will, will likely not leave the state, which is, is good for us because in general, we most we have students, or our students generally are in-state students, and so we have a chance to, to build that, that pool. Midwest, uh, again, will decrease 14.5%, and the East is expected to decline the most, and there's that, those, that region is where most of the students will attend four-year private institutions and get support from home. The top 50 research and liberal arts institutions around the U.S. are expected to increase that middle 50, or that next 50 to 100, based on U.S. News and World Report, decrease of 8% and then the regionals or those that fall outside of that top 100 are expected to de decrease by 11%. So again, all of these things are compounded along with the leaky pipeline of two-year institutions. We know nationally that we lose a lot of our community college students that say that they want to pursue a, a four-year degree and then choose not to do so. And so that on top of the nearly 23% decrease in two-year enrollment is going to be a challenge for us and a challenge for four-year institutions across the country. And so thinking more, more intentionally about how we engage our community colleges across the state, how we can reach into programs, two-year programs and attract students to, to UT institutions will be pretty important because we'll, we'll, have, to, we'll have to attract students from lots of different, uh, different uh, sources. One fact remains, when we pivoted online in spring 2020, we did it in a crisis mode. We gave little consideration to how effective our online teaching practices were. We had to do it immediately. As faculty have become more comfortable with teaching online, as extension programs have been delivered online, I think now we need to circle back and invest in ensuring quality online teaching and learning competencies for those that are, are presenting programs. According to over 300 chief academic officers, provosts across the, across the country, institutions are expected to invest additional dollars in ensuring quality in the next couple of months. Uh, course design, learning spaces will be different. You know, we had these big lecture halls that we 
we've used in the past. Many believe that the lecture hall may be a thing of the past because they put they put a lot of people in a room and really haven't the way that they've been used um, provide a lot of opportunity for interaction. And so thinking more purposefully about how do we create those interactive experiences, even if it is e-learning. One of the things that I think we'll see is we'll start to move away from offering only traditional semester long units in terms of bachelor degrees. And we really need to start thinking about more certificates, stackable credentials, non-credit work, variable length courses, and education for working professionals. And I think this is the real exciting component for extension because this is your space. This is an area where you excel and you have the opportunity to think about how does this fit in with the, the credit-bearing coursework that our students do and how can we credential uh, life experience kinds of, of opportunities so that we can earn those, so that, so that um, learners can earn their degree. We must find ways to credential ex uh, ex expertise learners have developed on their own and provide soft skills certification in areas like teamwork, communication, and entrepreneurship. We must stop measuring student success by graduation rate alone and begin recognizing that not all learners come to us with the goal of earning a degree. We should use the pan pandemic as an impetus for disaggregating traditional four-year and two-year degrees and break down academic offerings into stackable micro-credentials. And I know a lot of people are saying, that will never happen, now's the time for that to happen. And I think if we don't use this opportunity, if we don't take advantage of that, I think we, we need to design what makes sense, what do our students want, what do our learners want, not just our traditional age students, and let's offer what our learners want and do it in a way that is in units that can be meaningful to them. Google recently announced that they would be offering certificate, uh, career certificates or certifications, and many of the top employers around the country have now said that they will honor the Google certifications in lieu of a college degree. So we have competition that we've not had before, and perhaps it's just a matter of time until enrolling in an educational certification program is easy as adding something to your Amazon cart. In any case, just a couple of things that we've learned. I think it's important. What have we learned about the, the pivot, the pandemic, our teaching? So it's not surprising and it's probably not surprising to anybody in ag because we understand the importance of hands-on, face-to-face and the hallmark of what we do in terms of working with our students is that face-to-face -face interaction and experiential learning. And students, when they pivoted in spring said that they missed the interaction with their instructors, they miss access to faculty and classmates, socializing with fellow students, their structure and stability, their support services and access to study spaces. And so as we move out of the pandemic or as we move to more online learning, we have to be more creative in how do we build these kind of experiences into what we do in a way where students feel like they're still getting what they need. In general, when we made the rapid transition in the spring, students were dissatisfied with that transition and they had a difficult time navigating online tools and experiencing challenges accessing student learning or online learning materials. We also learned that 
students, while they recognize the efforts of faculty and the institutions and the responsiveness of the institutions, about 25% of our students that were currently enrolled said, and this is nationally, 25% of students said that their opinion of the institution had gotten worse since the pandemic began. And so I think that's an important and alarming statistic that we really need to think about. How do we re-engage those students? How do we help them understand or feel as though they're getting value? And how do we uh, make them or help them be more satisfied with their experience? Students say that their online experience is uninspiring. So how do we how do we make it more inspiring? They also say that they're spending less time on coursework that they don't see the value of real-time online learning. That's troubling. And they obviously prefer face-to-face -face instruction. Less than 2% of all the students surveyed it, it expressed an interest in attending college exclusively online. So I know that these were statistics that were gathered during that shift in spring semester, and a lot of those problems and issues have been ironed out, but these are very real responses to that, that we need to think about how do we, how do we incorporate in any kind of a learning environment, whether it's traditional classroom learning or extension or other kinds of, of education. We also revealed gaps in faculty preparation to teach online. Faculty were struggling with technology and many of the things that would allow them to be successful. So moving forward, we're going to need to, to provide necessary training and design support. I can see instructional design folks be embedded in departments and colleges, and we'll need to provide necessary release time for, for course development. Appropriate, we'll need to figure out what's the appropriate mix of online versus face-to-face. -face. What are things that we must do face-to-face? -face? What are the things that we can do electronically? What's enhanced by technology? What do we detract by? Um, providing it through an e-learning environment. And those are things that we really need to sit down and roll up our sleeves and figure, figure out. We must purposefully integrate technology, but we must be flexible in educational pathways. We have to increase that interaction in a way that we haven't done yet really in online education. And we must think about the way we educate our graduate students. This is the world that they're going to be entering. So we need to be more attentive to provide helping them develop the skills in terms of inclusive teaching experience. We must foster teaching entrepreneurship, encourage innovative and, and, and engaging instruction. We have to embrace bold and thoughtful pedagogy. And we have to create safe places for faculty to experiment and to learn from their failures. And this, again, is not always something that we've done well in higher ed. We can't treat uh, online instruction as an add-on and we must value quality teaching, whether it's face-to-face -face or whether it's online. So instead of asking if our students are ready for college, we must begin asking if we are ready for our learners. We must be more conscious and far, or our, our, our current generation is far more cost conscious. We need to make sure that we address that. They're far less interested in all the amenities that previous generations needed to be attracted to our institutions. They're highly focused on issues like social justice, systemic racism, free speech, and inclusivity and institutions that are that fail to that fail to address those issues will fa fail to attract and retain students in the future. 
Our current student body is the most diverse in history, yet the demographic of our faculty, staff, and administration lags, lags behind. Over the summer, more than 400 students decided to stop requiring the SAT and the ACT for admission. And even before COVID, a thousand other institutions made them optional. Whether the standardized admission tests will go with COVID by way of COVID, who knows? But I think we need to start thinking about those kinds of tests, those kinds of policies and practices that disadvantage some of our students. And rural students, students of color, have been shown to be disproportionately disadvantaged by the use of some of these standardized tests. And then finally, mental health is gonna be a high priority. We've seen the, the demand for mental health and well-being services uh, more than triple, in some cases increased by fivefold. And we need to think about that not only for our students, but for our faculty, for our staff, for the people who provide uh, those kinds of, of opportunities. We, we um, probably most troubling is the impact that COVID has had on accessibility and student success gaps. When we switched immediately, we recognized that our black and Hispanic students, as well as our low income and rural students had had issues related to access to inter internet. They had slower and older uh, laptops and they struggled more to find quiet spaces for academic work and less likely to seek assistance. Even in the best of times, we've seen gaps. We've, we know that our retention for black and Hispanic students um, is has been improving over time, but while we've made improvement in graduation rates, black students, uh, graduation rate, rates for black students is uh, that is only two thirds of that of their white counterparts, a gap that is expected to widen with the pandemic. Historically, historically graduation rates for Pell eligible students have fall, fallen far below their, their non-Pell-eligible counterparts. Pell-eligible students at four-year public institutions are 16.4% less likely to graduate. Again, a gap that's expected to widen with, with the pandemic. And food insecurity, while important for all students and is prevalent across all institutional types, it's much greater concern for non-white students than all other groups. And it's gonna be exacerbated by the uh, impact of COVID. Also the way that our students experience the, out, the um, other impacts of, of COVID. And while we can't, uh, we can't ignore that the dis it's taken a disproportionate poll on, or toll on marginalized student populations and economically disadvantaged students racial and ethnic minorities. The death per 100,000 people, for example, is 2.4 times higher for blacks than for whites, meaning that not only do our traditionally underserved students graduate at a lower rate, COVID has added a dynamic for which our students of color are experiencing the impacts of COVID in a very different way. For many of our students, college is the only way that they're able to ensure their basic needs are met. And so decisions, for example, to send students home at Thanksgiving break assumes that our students have safe places to, to go or for which to return and that they have an adequate, that have adequate food security. And as a result, many of our most economically challenged students have traditionally remained on campus during breaks and are not able to do so. And so making sure that they're able to meet those needs is gonna be really important. And, and that said, we must all be engaged in the solution because there are no easy answers. 
Finally, if we're to increase the number of students who earn degrees, we must address the systematic inequities that prevail in higher education and in our communities. Students are highly focused on issues like social justice, systemic racism, and inclusivity, and we must address those issues on the campuses or we will fail to attract students in the future. Doing nothing is not an option. Faculty must be trained in equity-focused pedagogy and teaching, and institutions must eliminate systemic inequities of all kind in policies and procedures across all learners. So bridging the accessibility and student success gaps will require institutions to examine all aspects of the way that they interact with students and learners from recruitment, admissions, retention, and student support services to recognize student success. So I'm just, I'll conclude, and I would appreciate if anybody has thoughts, but just to, to say that um, it's important work. And if it were easy, no, everybody, anybody could do it but there's little doubt that we need to make change. And that kind of change will take courageous and courageous leadership and unfailing persistence. And so I'd be interested to seeing what, or hearing what you have to say relative to, um, to uh, anything that you've observed or other, other feedback. And I'm trying to figure out how to now end uh, my screen share and maybe you can take it over. I'm having the same problem again. So yeah, I'll try to start sharing myself. Okay. Are you able to do that? There we go. Great. Well, thanks uh, for sharing just a ton of uh, information there uh, with us, Linda, and for you know really fueling a lot of. Uh, ideas and, and concepts, possibilities that uh, really, I think, hold some great opportunities for us. And as you mentioned, any challenge is an opportunity. So let me uh, turn it over to Lisa now and see if we've got some questions or, or just some comments, as, as Linda invited uh, from our participants today. So we do have a couple of questions, Linda. Um, the first one is, you did share um, that national survey of students. Has UT planned or conducted any sort of survey of UT students to see how they are feeling about the learning process? So the answer to that is yes and yes. So each campus has done some surveying of students in terms of, of kind of what their thinking is, what their struggles were, how their, their mental health and well-being, but they've all been different kinds of surveys. And we've looked at that information. We've also followed up with students, but we did a system-wide survey that incorporated uh, kind of what's front of mind for students, what are the greatest concerns, what are their needs, and how well their needs are being met for student success. And we're rolling that up and we're using that in terms of student programming on each of our campuses. And we'll have a report to the board and that will be made public so that others can use it in thinking about how do we address the needs of our students. And we're gonna continue to do that probably each semester from now on, because even though we will not be in the middle of a pandemic forever, hopefully, uh, there'll be other kinds of things that we'll want to know about and be able to respond to relative to our students. And um, we also have a comment here um, in thinking uh, about our other uh, learners out there, and that is that extension family and consumer science specialists and agents certainly have opportunities related 
to both food insecurity that you mentioned and also emotional uh, well-being. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think UTIA is probably better positioned than any other college, any other, any other unit, any other place on campus because of that strong community connection. And so, uh, you know, I've thought a lot about that and, uh, you know, in, in good times, um, that's so important in challenging times. I think it even magnifies the impact that that extension can have and the importance of being in the communities and being able to be partners in solving that. And along those lines, the um, other question was, so in thinking about um, our organization, what are two or three things that you think we can immediately do perhaps to address the issues and embrace the challenges that you um, shared with us? So I, I think really, well, there are a lot of immediate needs relative to providing resources for, for quality and, and, and helping presenters and teachers and, and extension agents be more proficient in delivering online and helping sort out what's best online and what's not. But I think from the teaching perspective, thinking about how do we take some of what we do in extension and offer it as opportunities to earn credit for students and how do we do it, put it in modules that are stackable credentials. How do we take something that might be developed for extension and make it a component of a course that provides that, that experience that that uh, it, it really allows, it allows that component to be used across um, all aspects of UTIA and thinking more creatively about things that we're already doing and how do we use that in terms of offering some really unique degree kind of opportunities for non-traditional learners as well. Great. Well, those were the questions and comments. Great, thank you, Lisa, and, and certainly uh, thanks to Linda as well. You know, one additional thought I had as we think about, you know, some of the areas students expre have expressed concerns about is a lack of engagement, a lack of connectedness. We've also got the, the benefit of having uh, ag research programs uh, with, with uh, facilities, not only near campus, but spread across the state. And even if our learners are are remote uh, and geographically separated, we could actually engage them uh, as we have been in the past, but perhaps more so in the future in, uh, in applied research opportunities, really complement some of those stacked uh, modular type uh, learning opportunities Linda mentioned. And I think about similar uh, opportunities in the College of Veterinary Medicine as well. So uh, I also feel like our, our uh, undergraduate programs are really foundational to, to the Institute, right? As, as the quality of our uh, academic programs goes, so goes the quality of the Institute of Agriculture to some extent. They're the workforce of the future, they're our future employees. Uh, so uh, this is one where I think we've all got to pull together. We've got to uh, really help one another, help our, help our learners. And uh, I think, uh, Linda, you really illustrated many great ideas to think about uh, as we uh, embrace the uh, opportunities for the future. So uh, I really appreciate uh, Dr. Martin taking the time this afternoon. She's got an extremely demanding schedule, but uh, it's been great to have her with us. Uh, and uh, as I told you before, she's part of our family and you, you can tell the depth of her knowledge and understanding 
of what we do each and every day. And that's uh, so helpful to us. So Linda, thanks again uh, for joining us today. And, and Tim, if I could just make one comment and that's I would challenge anyone. If you have a really unique idea and you say, I don't know that this will work or we tried this before and it, it, it didn't fly. Those are exactly the kinds of things I like to hear because I, I wanna I want to think about what's the right thing to do and then let's remove the barriers to make them happen. So if I can be of help, if I can be of assistance, please let me know. Great. So you heard it, folks. Uh, let's uh, share some ideas with Linda. And uh, just because it hasn't been possible before, let's not rule it out. Let's think out of the box. So good. Well, let me, uh, at least I'll just make a few sort of wrap up remarks and, and turn it over to you once again. And where I want to wind up today is really thinking back to where we started as well, and that is uh, the, the data that we looked at, the number of cases. And I know that every one of us is, is experiencing COVID fatigue in many, many different ways. Uh, but in spite of that, now is sure not the time to, uh, to let up on what are all of our efforts to stay safe and to stay healthy. So let me just give you another reminder and a plea. Keep wearing your masks. Uh, continue washing your hands frequently. Stay home when you're sick uh, and continue to stay socially distant. And remember, those things really don't just apply uh, at the workplace. Uh, we've got to practice those same things in, in all aspects of our lives. Now, clearly, when, when we're in our own home uh, with our own immediate family, that, that's a different matter. But uh, let's keep one another safe by... Uh, uh, following those practices uh, anytime and every time that we can. Uh, your dedication here is really what's made the difference thus far, and it will help uh, to ensure that we keep our cases low, even while we see uh, national and state uh, trends uh, as, as we looked at earlier. So uh, that's my plea today. Uh, don't, don't give in to COVID fatigue. Stick with it. Do your part and do your best. And uh, if you'll do that, we'll all uh, benefit as an institute. Uh, and I know we'll all uh, prosper as a result. So with that, let me just say and enjoy this beautiful fall weather. I hope each of you have a great weekend. Thanks again to Dr. Martin. And, and thanks to uh, Lisa and Mike Stanley for making our fireside chat possible once more. Thanks to you, Tim. And thanks, Linda. And everyone have a wonderful weekend.